Part Five of Orinoco. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Orinoco, or the Royal Slave, by Aphra Ben. Part Five. This Jamoan afterwards became very dear to him, being a man very gallant and of excellent graces and fine parts so that he never put him amongst the rank of captives as they used to do, without distinction, for the common sale or market, but kept him in his own court, where he retained nothing of the prisoner but the name, and returned no more into his own country. So great an affection he took for Orinoco, and by a thousand tales and adventures of love and gallantry flattered his disease of melancholy and languishment which I have often heard him say, had certainly killed him but for the conversation of this prince and a Beauan, and the French governor he had from his childhood, of whom I have spoken before, and who was a man of admirable wit, great ingenuity and learning, all which he had infused into his young pupil. This Frenchman was banished out of his own country, for some heretical notions he held, and though he was a man of very little religion, he had admirable morals and a brave soul. After the total defeat of Jamoan's army, which all fled, or were left dead upon the place, they spent some time in the camp, Orinoco choosing rather to remain a while there in his tents, than to enter into a palace, or live in a court, where he had so lately suffered so great a loss. The officers, therefore, who saw and knew his cause of discontent, invented all sorts of diversions and sports to entertain their prince. So that what with those amusements abroad, and others at home, that is, within their tents, with the persuasions, arguments, and care of his friends and servants that he more peculiarly prized, he wore off in time a great part of that chagrin and torture of death of despair, which the first effects of Amoinda's death had given him. Insomuch as having received a thousand kind embassies from the king, and invitation to return to court, he obeyed, though with no little reluctancy and when he did so, there was a visible change in him, and for a long time he was much more melancholy than before. But time lessens all extremes, and reduces them to mediums and unconcern. But no motives of beauties, though all endeavoured it, could engage him in any sort of amour, though he had all the invitations to it, both from his own youth and others' ambitions and designs. Orinoco was no sooner returned from this last conquest, and received at court with all the joy and magnificence that could be expressed to a young victor, who was not only returned triumphant, but beloved like a deity, than there arrived in the port an English ship. The master of it had often before been in these countries, and was very well known to Orinoco, with whom he had trafficked for slaves, and had used to do the same with his predecessors. This commander was a man of a finer sort of address and conversation, better bred and more engaging than most of that sort of men are, so that he seemed rather never to have been bred out of a court than almost all his life at sea. This captain, therefore, was always better received at court than most of the traders to those countries were, and especially by Orinoco, who was more civilised, according to the European mode, than any other had been, and took more delight in the white nations, and above all men of parts and wit. To this captain he sold abundance of his slaves, and for the favour and esteem he had for him, made him many presents, and obliged him to stay at court as long as possibly he could which the captain seemed to take as a very great honour done him, entertaining the prince every day with globes and maps, and mathematical discourses and instruments, eating, drinking, hunting, and living with him with so much familiarity, that it was not to be doubted but he had gained very greatly upon the heart of this gallant young man. 
and the captain, in return of all these mighty favours, besought the prince to honour his vessel with his presence, some day or other at dinner, before he should set sail, which he condescended to accept, and appointed this day. The captain, on his part, failed not to have all things in a readiness, in the most magnificent order he could possibly. And the day being come, the captain, in his boat, richly adorned with carpets and velvet cushions, rowed to the shore to receive the prince. With another long-boat, where was placed all his music and trumpets, with which Orinoco was extremely delighted, who met him on the shore, attended by his French governor, Jamoan, Aboan, and about an hundred of the noblest of the youths of the court. And after they had first carried the prince on board, the boats fetched the rest off, where they found a very splendid treat, with all sorts of fine wines, and were as well entertained as twas possible in such a place to be. The prince, having drunk hard of punch and several sorts of wine, as did all the rest, for great care was taken they should want nothing of that part of the entertainment, was very merry, and in great admiration of the ship, for he had never been in one before, so that he was curious of beholding every place where he decently might descend. The rest, no less curious, who were not quite overcome with drinking, rambled at their pleasure fore and aft, as their fancies guided them. So that the captain, who had well laid his design before, gave the word, and seized on all his guests, they clapping great iron suddenly on the prince, when he was leapt down into the hold to view that part of the vessel, and locking him fast down, secured him. The same treachery was used to all the rest, and all in one instant in several places of the ship were lashed fast in irons, and betrayed to slavery. That great design over, they set all hands to work to hoist sail, and with as treacherous as fair a wind they made from the shore with this innocent and glorious prize, who thought of nothing less than such an entertainment. Some have commended this act as brave in the captain but I will spare my sense of it, and leave it to my reader to judge as he pleases. It may be easily guessed in what manner the prince resented this indignity, who may be best resembled to a lion taken in a toil. So he raged, so he struggled for liberty, but all in vain. And they had so wisely managed his fetters, that he could not use a hand in his defence to quit himself of a life that would by no means endure slavery nor could he move from the place where he was tied to any solid part of the ship, against which he might have beat his head, and have finished his disgrace that way. So that, being deprived of all other means, he resolved to perish for want of food, and pleased at last with that thought, and toiled and tired by rage and indignation, he laid himself down, and sullenly resolved upon dying, and refused all things that were brought him. This did not a little vex the captain and the more so, because he found almost all of them the same humour, so that the loss of so many brave slaves, so tall and goodly to behold, would have been very considerable. He therefore ordered one to go from him, for he would not be seen himself, to Orinoco, and to assure him, he was afflicted for having rashly done so unhospitable a deed, and which could not now be remedied, since they were far from shore. But since he resented it in so high a nature, he assured him he would revoke his resolution, and set both him and his friends ashore on the next land they should touch at, and of this the messenger gave him his oath, provided he would resolve to live. And Orinoco, whose honour was such as he had never violated a word in his life himself, much less a solemn asseveration, believed in an instant what this man said, but replied, he expected for a confirmation of this, to have his shameful fetters dismissed. This demand was carried to the captain 
who returned him answer that the offence had been so great which he had put upon the prince, that he durst not trust him with liberty while he remained in the ship, for fear lest by a valour natural to him, and a revenge that would animate that valour, he might commit some outrage fatal to himself and the king his master, to whom this vessel did belong. To this Oronoco replied, he would engage his honour to behave himself in all friendly order and manner, and obey the command of the captain, as he was lord of the king's vessel, and general of those men under his command. This was delivered to the still doubting captain, who could not resolve to trust a heathen, he said, upon his parole, a man that had no sense or notion of the god that he worshipped. Orinoco then replied he was very sorry to hear that the captain pretended to the knowledge and worship of any gods, who had taught him no better principles than not to credit as he would be credited. But they told him, the difference of their faith occasioned that distrust, for the captain had protested to him upon the word of a Christian, and sworn in the name of a great god, which if he should violate, he would expect eternal torment in the world to come. Is that all the obligation he has to be just to his oath? replied Orinoco. Let him know I swear by my honour, which to violate would not only render me contemptible and despised by all brave and honest men, and so give myself perpetual pain, but it would be eternally offending and displeasing all mankind, harming, betraying, circumventing, and outraging all men. But punishments hereafter are suffered by oneself, and the world takes no cognizance whether this God have revenged them, or not, tis done so secretly and deferred so long while the man of no honour suffers every moment the scorn and contempt of the honester world, and dies every day ignominiously in his fame, which is more valuable than life. I speak not this to move belief, but to show you how you mistake, when you imagine that he who will violate his honour will keep his word with his gods." So, turning from him with a disdainful smile, he refused to answer him, when he urged him to know what answer he should carry back to his captain so that he departed without saying any more. The captain, pondering and consulting what to do, it was concluded that nothing but Orinoco's liberty would encourage any of the rest to eat, except the Frenchman, whom the captain could not pretend to keep prisoner, but only told him he was secured because he might act something in favour of the prince, but that he should be freed as soon as they came to land. So that they concluded it wholly necessary to free the prince from his irons, that he might show himself to the rest that they might have an eye upon him, and that they could not fear a single man. This being resolved, to make the obligation the greater, the captain himself went to Orinoco, where, after many compliments and assurances of what he had already promised, he receiving from the prince his parole, and his hand for his good behaviour dismissed his irons, and brought him to his own cabin, where, after having treated and reposed him a while, for he had neither ate nor slept in four days before, he besought him to visit those obstinate people in chains, who refused all manner of sustenance, and entreated him to oblige him to eat, and assure him of that liberty on the first opportunity. Orinoco, who was too generous not to give credit to his words, showed himself to his people, who were transported with excessive joy at the sight of their darling prince, falling at his feet and kissing and embracing him, believing, as some divine oracle, all he assured him but he besought him to bear their chains with that bravery that became those whom he had seen act so nobly in arms, and that they could not give him greater proofs of their love and friendship, since twas all the security the captain, his friend, could have, against the revenge, he said they might possibly justly take for the injury sustained by him. And they all with one accord assured him they could not suffer enough, when it was for his repose and safety. 
After this they no longer refused to eat, but took what was brought them, and were pleased with their captivity, since by it they hoped to redeem the prince, who all the rest of the voyage was treated with all the respect due to his birth, though nothing could divert his melancholy, and he would often sigh for a moinder, and think this a punishment due to his misfortune, in having left that noble maid behind him that fateful night, in the Otan, when he was fled to the camp. Possessed with a thousand thoughts of past joys with this fair young person, and a thousand griefs for her eternal loss, he endured a tedious voyage, and at last arrived at the mouth of the river of Surinam, a colony belonging to the King of England, and where they were to deliver some part of their slaves. There the merchants and gentlemen of the country going on board, to demand those lots of slaves they had already agreed on, and amongst those the overseers of those plantations where I then chanced to be, the captain who had given the word ordered his men to bring up those noble slaves in fetters, whom I have spoken of, and having put em, some in one and some in other lots, with women and children, which they call piccaninnies, they sold em off, as slaves, to several merchants and gentlemen, not putting any two in one lot, because they would separate em far from each other, nor daring to trust em together, lest rage and courage should put em upon contriving some great action to the ruin of the colony. Orinoco was first seized on, and sold to our overseer, who had the first lot, with seventeen more of all sorts and sizes, but not one of quality with him. When he saw this, he found what they meant, for, as I said, he understood English pretty well, and being wholly unarmed and defenceless, so as it was in vain to make any resistance, he only beheld the captain with a look all fierce and disdainful, upbraiding him with eyes that forced blushes on his guilty cheeks, he only cried in passing over the side of the ship, "'Farewell, sir! Tis worth my sufferings to gain so true a knowledge both of you and of your gods, by whom you swear!' And desiring those that held him to forbear their pains, and telling him he would make no resistance, he cried, "'Come, my fellow-slaves, let us descend, and see if we can meet with more honour and honesty in the next world we shall touch upon." So he nimbly leapt into the boat, and showing no more concern, suffered himself to be rowed up the river, with his seventeen companions. End of Part 5